right. Good morning. You all right? Happy Sunday to you. Hey, if you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you don't have one, uh, you are going to need one. So grab one in the Bible rack in front of you. Should be one around you in the pew or take your neighbors and they can use that one, whatever you want to do. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 11. If you're new, welcome. Uh, Happy Memorial Day weekend. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here, and we've been in a study of the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 11, and as I'm talking and uh, sort of setting the stage for what we're going to look at here this morning, why don't you find two places for me, find Revelation chapter 11 all the way on the right, and then find Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to have a little bit of a a long runway to getting into this text and really seeing what's going on. This is a complex text. I started this text this week uh, thinking it was one thing, and by the end of the week, it was something totally different. So that, that happens when you study the Bible, is that you always are setting your own expectations and perspectives out and allowing the scriptures to evaluate it. But as such, Revelation chapter 11 is uh, perhaps the most complex chapter that we've looked at up to this point in the book of Revelation. There's probably four or five different interpretations about what is happening in this passage. And um, I obviously have it all figured out, so this will be the right one. So be encouraged there that you finally found the right interpretation of Revelation 11. Uh, no, this is, uh, this is one that you come at and look at with some fear and trepidation. You always are approaching the scriptures with a sense of humility to understand, God, what are you saying here in this passage? You remember when we started this study, uh, Revelation chapter 1 said, blessed is he who reads and obeys this book. So we want to be a people that is characterized by taking the truth of God's word, applying it to our lives, and living uh, in light of the truth of God's word in such a way that we understand it and um, uh, it gets into the marrow of our lives. So let me tell you where we've been up to this point. We've moved uh, from the church age to the glory of heaven and the one who's seated on the throne and the lamb in Revelation chapters 4 and chapter 5. We've looked at the opening of the seals as the lamb began to open the seals and move forward God's purposes. We got to seal number 7, which opened up the seven trumpets, and now we're in the interlude. And between the sixth and seventh seal, you have an interlude. You have a moment where you can catch your breath, and all of heaven goes quiet for a minute, and then the trumpet judgment starts. Well, we're again in between trumpet number six and trumpet number seven. Trumpet number seven will sound next week, but before we get there, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 11. Uh, from verse 1 down to about verse 14. Did you find it there? Let me tell you what's, uh, why. This, this is an important text for a couple reasons that you'll see as we get into and work our way through this passage. Uh, but what I want to leave you with by the end of our time is really one major idea. It's, it's one major idea that characterizes the New Testament church because as we read the book of Revelation, we're invited into John's experience of time travel, that the book of Revelation shows you the last seven years of human history before Jesus Christ returns, uh, the millennium's established, and we have the new heavens and the new earth. So we're right toward the end of history. So what we're doing as we read the book of Revelation is taking truths from the future and living our lives now like they're true. You with me? That a lot of times when you read the scriptures, you look at things that have happened in the church age from uh, Jesus and the Old Testament, and you live in light of those objective truths. Well, Revelation reworks it uh, a little bit differently. So Revelation chapter 7 
showed you the sealing of God's people, the nation of Israel. That God, in Revelation 7, we said, was not done with his people. That there was coming a time when God would regather and restore the hearts of his people Israel. And we saw the people restored. Well, we're going to look at a place here today. We're going to look at the city of Jerusalem. And just like God restored his people in Revelation chapter 7, we're going to see God restore a place that we as Christians believe that heaven isn't just a disembodied spiritual existence. It's both a real place with real people. Amen? That that's you with me? Amen? That's heaven, right? Real people, real place. Well, you're going to see uh, God's purposes take shape here on earth as God marks out another place where his people are in Revelation chapter 11. So, as I said, complex passage, but uh, we're going to look at one major idea uh, as we close our time together. All right, let's pray and ask God for his grace to dive in here. Father in heaven, thanks for your word. Thanks for, uh, as we celebrate this Memorial Day weekend, we remember with reverence those who gave their lives to secure the freedoms that we enjoy here this morning that we can gather without persecution and we have the opportunity to pray and to speak and to uh, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have the freedom to gather and to worship and to remember what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. Father, we pray as the Psalms say that the unfolding of your words would give light, that during our time here in the next few minutes, we would understand things about you that perhaps we haven't seen before, that we would see truth in your word that was a, would allow us to live in our day and age with wisdom and insight and understanding, that we would be men and women of the times that understand what your church ought to do. We pray for a heavenly perspective. We pray the truth of God would give strength and courage to our lives. And we pray most of all that, uh, as the Psalms say, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, now as I said, we've got a little bit of a runway. Uh, we're going to look at probably four or five different Old Testament books in the book of, or in the chapter uh, of Revelation 11. It, it's going to be almost an Old Testament Bible study. It's a very Old Testament passage. And to understand what's happening in the passage, we're going to have to see multiple themes that are going on. So you got to bear with me, put on your thinking caps, and, and let's get going. Look at Revelation 11, verse 1. Y'all there? All right, Revelation 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff. Now, 10 and 11 in Revelation, John is invited into his visionary experience. You remember that our, our chapter closed in Revelation 10 last week with John taking a small scroll and eating it, right? And in his mouth it was sweet, and in his stomach it was bitter. And he, he was said, he was told, look at just the end of chapter 10 there. You see what it says? That I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And you're going to see reference in this chapter to peoples, languages, nations. And the remaining chapter, we'll talk about kings. That'll be next week. But you're going to see John's prophecy go forward as John describes his experience of this vision as well. So last week, he's given a little bitty scroll to eat. Makes his stomach bitter. Here in Revelation chapter 11, he's given a rod to measure a certain place. Now, 
if you look at the cross-references through chapter 10 and through chapter 11, you're going to see two different references to Ezekiel. Now, you've probably thought to yourself, gosh, I've been spending so much time in Ezekiel this week, I'm glad somebody's finally talking about it. Well, Ezekiel begins some of his prophecy with a similar experience that John has in Revelation 10, where Ezekiel receives a scroll from an angel and he eats it, it's sweet, and he's called and told to declare what is written on this scroll, words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Well, later on in Ezekiel's ministry, he's given a rod like John is here, and it's one of the sections in your Bible that's maybe the most tedious portion to read next to, you know, First Chronicles or Leviticus, where all good Bible reading plans go to die, that, that it's this period in Ezekiel 40 to 48 that's so particular, it's like, you know, when we were um, examining this building, uh, we had a architect come in, and the architect walked around the building with a 3D scanner, and it showed you, like, where all of the little nooks and crannies were in the building, and it produced a total 3D rendering. And we found a horse track and King Tut's tomb and all sorts of stuff was in the building that we didn't know was there. And it showed us the entire building. Then we got blueprints. Now, I'm not good at reading blueprints. Some of you maybe are. Maybe you're engineers or architects or whatever. But when I look at blueprints, they're kind of dry, And maybe that's, you know, you get really excited, but when you read Ezekiel 40 to 48, it's like a verbal description of blueprints. And it's real dry. And it's real exhausting to read. And John has a similar moment here to when when Ezekiel has a moment of describing the temple where this angel shows him and measures off. Here's a real place and with real dimensions and real doorways and real entrances and exits. And in Ezekiel's day, he's preaching during the exilic times, which means that Israel has sinned and sinned in perpetuity so that they've been taken into exile in the land of Assyria and then Babylon and then the Medes and the Persians land. And in Ezekiel's day, there is no temple. It's been ransacked and burned to the ground and totally destroyed. And in Ezekiel's prophecy, he has a picture of a temple. Well, here in Revelation chapter 11, here's John. And John's in similar, uh, a similar state as Ezekiel is. John receives his prophecy in about A.D. 90. And in A.D. 70, you have the ransacking of Jerusalem. Remember at the end of Jesus's Uh, the end of the Gospels, Jesus is talking with the disciples and they talk about how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus says, there's coming a time when not one stone will be left upon one another. Everything will be wiped out and everything will be destroyed. Well, in AD 70, a Roman general named Titus shows up in Jerusalem and he wipes the city out. He totally destroys the temple. Everything is leveled to the ground. You can see a monument to Titus's Um, uh, victories today in Europe. It's called the Titus Arch that categorizes and lists all of his military exploits, one of which being the total destruction of Jerusalem. So just like in Revelation chapter 7 where John sees the regathered nation of Israel, the regathered people that God has not abandoned his people, he remembers every single one of them and will bring them all back together. Now John is given a measuring rod 
and he has a moment where he measures out the temple again. The temple has been destroyed up to this point. So John would see this and he'd look at the temple and he says, I remember that God hasn't forgotten his people, but God has not forgotten his city. The city of Jerusalem in the Psalms is called the city of the great king. Psalm 48 talks about this city being a central location in God's purposes from which he will rule and reign. So here's John receiving this this vision, this experience where he sees this this temple laid out and he's told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now, why is there a temple in the tribulation period, you may be asking, and that is why we need to go to Daniel chapter nine. So keep your finger in Revelation 11 and flip back to Daniel chapter nine. Daniel chapter nine, Daniel is also an exilic prophet. He's someone who's receiving revelation about what God will do with his people. And in Daniel chapter nine, Daniel has been reading the book of Jeremiah. And he's reading and finding out that 70 years are decreed for God's people to be in exile. And it's coming up on the amount of time that that is fulfilled for the time that they'll be in exile. And Daniel starts praying, confessing sin, and recognizing that he and his people have not fulfilled the righteous standards that God requires. And in the midst of his repenting and praying and asking for forgiveness, he has Gabriel come and visit him. Look at Daniel 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And what comes next is what's called Daniel's 70-week prophecy. There's probably hours and hours of material that I could talk about just in these next four or five verses, but I want to treat it real quickly for you. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. There's coming a time, Daniel, when all of sin will be removed and holiness will be restored. And it's 70 weeks from now, and weeks in the book of Daniel here in this prophecy have to do with seven years. So you have 490 years that are described in this next section. Verse 25, know therefore and understand from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Now, the command to restore Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's destroyed, Daniel's in exile. There's coming a time where a king named Cyrus, a Persian king, will announce that God's people, his Israelites, will be allowed to return to Jerusalem and restore the temple and their city. And that's written in the book of Ezra. Ezra is allowed to return to the city and Ezra comes back and he reestablishes the altar. 
And then two individuals follow Ezra, a man named Zerubbabel and a man named Joshua, a governor and a high priest. And they return to the land and God's people now begin to flow from exile and flow from the lands where they've been dispersed and they return back to the land of Israel. And they begin to set up the temple. That's the book of Ezra. Ezra gets ready to set up the altar and set up the temple. And then during Ezra's day, the people get discouraged, which I'll get to in a minute. Look at what he goes on to say here. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. That's the rebuilding of the temple of Ezra, which extends into Jesus's day that Herod makes more beautiful in his day. Verse 26, and after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. This is the coming of Jesus Christ. And people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's A.D. 70 and the coming of the Roman general. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And from A.D. 70 and forward, the nation of Israel still has no temple. Though they have land, they have no temple because they cannot rebuild the temple. Do you know why? The temple cannot be restored because at this moment, for the last 1,100 years, an Islamic holy site called the Dome of the Rock exists in the very place where the temple is to be built. Now, watch what Daniel goes on to say. And he, the prince, in context, the people of the prince, the Romans, will come and destroy the city of Jerusalem, destroy the temple, burn everything to the ground, but he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. It's the final week in Daniel's prophecy, the final seven years of Daniel's prophecy, which shows up in the book of Revelation. I'll show you that in a minute. For half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Where do you have sacrifice and offering as an Israelite? You have it in the temple. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. There's coming a time when this individual who sets up his kingdom will put himself in the temple of God. Here, this is what Jesus talks about. Turn to your right to Matthew 24. In the world's longest introduction to the text that we're going to look at. Matthew 24. Look at verse 15. Here's what Jesus says. Matthew 24, verse 15. You see the abomination of desolation? The heading in your Bible? So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet who? Daniel. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. We're waiting for there to be a temple. Let me show you this one more place. Turn to your right to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Keep going to your right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've looked at this text before in talking about why 2 Thessalonians or why the Thessalonian church needed to know that the day of the Lord had not come. Because the Thessalonians were worried that because of their suffering and persecution, they have missed the day of the Lord, that they were living in a time where they were experiencing the wrath of God. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. 
Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat where? In the temple of God. So come back to Revelation. Here's John looking in the end times in the last seven years of human history and observing that Israel has the temple that they so desire, that they can't worship at now, they can't partake in sacrifices and offerings now because there is no temple that allows them to worship. But John is recognizing that there's a place now during the end days where Israel has a place to worship that is marked out for them. Now look at verse 2 of chapter 11. Do not measure the court outside the temple, but leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, for three and a half years. At the temple has the most holy place, it has the holy place, it has the court and the altar of sacrifice, which is probably the altar that John is measuring, it has the court of women, it has the court of Gentiles. That the court of Gentiles, the place that is going to experience and be given over to the Gentiles, is similar to what Jesus talks about in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, Jesus talks about Jerusalem being trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That there's coming a season where there's hardening of God's nation of Israel as the full number of Gentiles now come in, but then God will ultimately restore his people, bring them back to himself and have a period and a place where he says these people are worshiping the one true God. You with me so far? Okay, now the real sermon starts. How are we doing? That's, that's pretty good. We're 20 minutes in, and now the sermon's gonna begin. All right, now relax. We've done all that background. Let's look at Revelation 11, verse three. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Now we've seen two periods of time that have been mentioned back to back, 42 months and 1260 days. The Jewish year is 360 days, which three and a half times 360, do the math, you get 1260, right? I don't know, I got the 200 million number wrong two weeks ago with the angels at the River Euphrates. So I, I couldn't even multiply two times 10,000 times 10,000. So I got that wrong. So if you, know, if you want to correct my math, feel free to do that, tweet it, and let people know that I'm not good at math. Either way, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They're given a sense of authority. You've watched through the book of Revelation that every single angel or witness has been given authority for a certain purpose to accomplish a certain thing that God desires for a certain amount of time that everything in the book of Revelation is surgically designed. And these witnesses have a certain authority to accomplish God's will in the last three and a half years of human history for 1260 days, and they're clothed in sackcloth. Now let me talk about this just for a minute. Sackcloth is clothing that is worn by mourners. If you remember the book of Jonah, Jonah gets vomited by the fish on the land and he goes to the city of Nineveh and he proclaims in 40 days the city of Nineveh is going to be destroyed and the king of Nineveh dons sackcloth. He puts on sackcloth and he demands that everybody all the way down to the animals is covered in sackcloth and demands that everybody cry out to God to see if God might perhaps show mercy. So 
in the last two weeks, we've seen John eat a scroll that is sweet, but in his stomach, it makes him nauseous. And now here are two witnesses that are clothed not in splendor, but in sadness and in grief and in mourning. It's as if God's witnesses in this time and place look out at the world and they're grieved to the center of their being at what they see. And both of these chapters come on the heels of Revelation chapter 9 where everybody refuses to repent, to, ref to uh, refuse to stop worshiping the works of their hands, the worship of demons, to continue in their murder and their theft and their sorceries. And it's as if God's people at this time, they feel the weight in the pit of their stomach that judgment is coming. Because as you move forward in the book of Revelation, it's been hard up to this point. It's devastating here on out. It is a horror movie. Let me ask, do you ever feel like that when you look at life and you look at the news that you have the truth of God and you, you look at what God says in his word and it's sweet and encouraging to you but then you look up and you recognize that there's a bitterness in your soul that life as it is, you feel that it ought not be this way. Now these two witnesses are clothed in the, the garments of mourning. And what you're gonna see as John describes them is they're gonna be from three distinct periods of Israel's history. That you're gonna have the exile, you're gonna have the monarchy period where the kings are, and then you're gonna have the law. Take a look. Verse four, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, do you have a cross-reference in your Bible that says Zechariah chapter four? You see that? It's, it's uh, Zechariah four is a vision that Zechariah receives. Now, Zechariah prophesies at the same time that um, Haggai does. So when Ezra comes back to rebuild the temple, he rebuilds the altar and then Zerubbabel and Joshua come back and they begin to rebuild the temple along with God's people. And then as they're rebuilding, the people get distracted and they get discouraged. And they start focusing on their own houses and building their, their own stuff and focusing on their own life while God's temple, the, the center of their religious and worship life, lays in ruins and what God does is send Haggai and Zechariah, who are two prophets, to come and remind the people and tell them, hey, let's complete the work that we were meant to do. And in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah is given a vision of two trees and lampstands. And these two trees are called the sons of new oil that stand before the Lord of all the earth, which is what John says here in Revelation 11.4. And in the midst of that prophecy that God gives to Zechariah, he says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And if you read the book of Haggai, Haggai talks about the people being distracted and the people being discouraged and the people being 
distressed and defiled in the ways that they're trying to worship and they, they still have sin. And God, it's as if God tells them through Zechariah, be encouraged, the work of God can only be accomplished by the spirit of God. That even though things look bleak, be encouraged that what I am about to do through Zerubbabel and through Joshua is so amazing and so wonderful, it'll look like a mountain is being leveled and steamrolled. And it only can be accomplished by God's power. So in Revelation 11, these witnesses are empowered by the Spirit of God. See, the Christian life runs on the gasoline of the Holy Spirit's strength and power. Right, Christians? that it's not run in our own strength. Well, these witnesses are living and serving God in a time where they are empowered by the very Spirit of God to accomplish the purposes of God in their day. Look at verse five. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. You can insert your bad breath dad joke right there if you would like. Write that in the margin for later. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. It may be that actual fire comes from their mouth. It may be that fire falls from heaven when they are declaring the truth of God and people refuse to believe it. Not only that, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Now, if you've read your Bible before, you would know that that sounds a lot like a prophet from the Old Testament, doesn't it? Who's it sound like? It sounds like Elijah. These are the two miracles that bracket the ministry of Elijah. The first one, Elijah shows up in 1 Kings 17 and he prays for three and a half years that it would not rain and it does not rain. That in a time in the book of Revelation where we see the shutting up of the sky and the waters being made bitter and the sea being turned to blood that this individual has the power to turn off the water cycle. And the second one that he's given is the power to uh, kill people with fire. That's Elijah's final miracle before he's taken up into heaven. It's in 2 Kings chapter 1, and there's a king named Ahaziah who refuses to inquire of the prophets of the Lord, and he, he has a fall through his roof, and he decides to go ask Baal, one of the gods, if he's going to recover, and he his men, on the way to inquire of Baal, run into Elijah. And Elijah goes, because there's not a prophet of Israel, why are you going to Baal? And he says, king, you're going to die. And the king goes, oh, no, I'm not. I'm going to send the army after you. And the army shows up. He sends 50 guys and a general to Elijah. And they say, man of God, come down. Elijah goes, if I'm a man of God, may fire strike you. <laughs> 51 guys, gone. Another group of guys show up, another 50 plus one. What do you think happens to them? They get hit by lightning too. Fire falls from heaven and they get destroyed. A third group of 50 guys show up and they're a little different. They come and they look at the carnage. They go, man of God, would you consider my life precious? And God says, you can go with them now. They understand who I am and who my prophet of God is. Well, this prophet in this time in a sense, takes the prophetic period of Israel's relationship to the monarchy where the prophets rise up to declare to the king and to their land what is right and what is wrong, who is the sinner and who is uh, walking according to the truth of God. 
So we've had two groups of people now, two descriptions, the exile period, where God's work can only be done by the power of God. You have the prophetic period, where God's work is only done through the word of God. And you have one more. Look at the rest of it in verse 6. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Who's that sound like? Moses. So you have these two witnesses looking a lot like the law and the prophets who in their day are declaring the word of God through the power of God in a time where there's massive unrepentance and massive refusal of their message. Look at verse 7. And when they finished their testimony, these two individuals are perhaps the most significant New Testament figures outside of Jesus Christ. They're the most powerful preachers perhaps in all of the New Testament. And they have a certain time and a certain window with which to work. And when their time is done and they've completed their job, look what happens. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and will conquer them and will kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. Now, what's the great city? Watch this. That symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. What is happening in the city of Jerusalem? That it would be described as Sodom, the single greatest uh, place in your Old Testament of perversion. And Egypt the single greatest place of Israel's slavery. Do you see why God begins this chapter marking out the temple, marking out those who would worship there because everything else in this city is a horror. Now, look at verse nine. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations. Now that's what I wanted you to circle from Revelation chapter 10. This is the bitterness of John's stomach being written right in front of you. These peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. It is the only place in the book of Revelation where there is rejoicing. You know that? Where the earth dwellers party. And they party because finally we have been able to overcome and to extinguish these lampstands that keep talking to us about sin and righteousness and judgment and repentance And finally, when we can get these witnesses out of here, we can buy each other presents because finally we don't have to listen to all of that preaching that demands that we say sorry for our sin. And it's the saddest text to this point. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of God, breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, 
and great fear fell on those who saw them. Isn't that amazing? That for three and a half days, everybody's going to be able to see their dead bodies. Nobody's going to bury them. And then in the greatest miracle of the New Testament, the conquering of death, they will come to life and they will experience resurrection. Do you believe that? Let me, like, just as an aside, you can't understand the law and the prophets without the resurrection, right? That the Bible holds together not on uh, obedience to God's commands per se. The Bible holds together because there has been one who has been incarnated as the perfect God-man to live according to all of God's righteous standards, to perfectly fulfill the law and prophets, and then die, get buried, and rise again three days later. Does this theme sound at all familiar? So when you look at the two witnesses standing on their feet, you know, I think that we have a bad understanding, like we have a bad relationship with death. That's a weird sentence to say. But I think we look at death inappropriately because these two witnesses have had perhaps the most dynamic and powerful ministry in all of the scriptures next to Jesus Christ and their ministry is only for a little bit in the power and the spirit of God and then they face death and then they're resurrected do you know that as a Christian your life and the ministry that God has given you here on this planet for as long as he's given you will only and ultimately make sense in light of resurrection. Will only and ultimately make sense when you lose everything and you put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. You with me? Do you ever get discouraged that life doesn't go the way you want it to go? You ever feel like you're not as holy or progressed or mature or that you're not seeing the success that you'd like to see in this particular season of life? Well, don't worry, you're gonna die. Right? And ultimately, my hope had better be in something that gets me through death. And the scriptures are clear. Paul in the book of Colossians says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, who is your life, then you will appear with him in glory. That my life is completely safe and secure in what Jesus has done for me. And that however long I'm given, for whatever season of ministry that God sees fit to use me on this planet, there's coming a day when that season will come to an end, right? Right? 
And at the end of that time, my whole hope is that my life makes sense in light of the fact that Jesus has been risen from the dead, who therefore will raise me from the dead, guaranteeing that my sins are cleansed. And that I forever and always will be in heaven in the presence of God, cleansed from my sin because of what Jesus has done on the cross and in his death, burial, and resurrection for me. Amen? You with me? Big deal here. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. At that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, commentators go both ways. Is that a testimony of we believe in these witnesses, or is that a recognition, though perpetual hardness of heart. I lean towards the first one. Giving glory to God of heaven is consistent in the book of Revelation for being something that angels recognize God for who he is. They see God rightly. They say those people, those witnesses are of God. Verse 14, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So what do you do with this? How do we apply Revelation 11? For the church, we recognize something, don't we? We recognize that the calling to be a witness is something that echoes through the pages of the New Testament, isn't it? That from the beginning of the church in Acts chapter one, the disciples come to Jesus and they, Jesus, they say, is now the time that you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, not for you to know the times and the seasons set by the Father's own authority, but you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Why has God left us here, church? Did God leave us here to go on vacation and make a lot of money and get lots of degrees and be real smart and do CrossFit? Is that why we're here? That consistently through the pages of the New Testament, as these individuals who saw the risen Christ now go forward in their ministry, they begin to declare, this man, God rose from the dead, and of that we are witnesses, Peter says. That the tuning fork that creates the reverberations that goes forward is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of that, we are witnesses. Why are we here? Because we had somebody who told us the good news that our sins could be forgiven, that we could be made right with God, that the areas of our life and heart that we regret, that we have sorrow over, that we wouldn't want published online can be forgiven that we can be restored to right relationship, that we can know intimacy of a relationship with our heavenly father because Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, died, was buried, and rose again. That's the essential message of the Christian church, that there's somebody who has beaten death, that our hope is in resurrection, That's why we have an Easter. 
That's why we talk about the same thing every Easter, that Jesus is risen from the dead. Why are we here? We are here to proclaim that singular message that when I parent, I want my kids to know that their sins are forgiven in Jesus' name because he rose from the dead. How many people in here had somebody share the truth of God with you? Four. Now, come on, keep raising your hands like you've been to church. There you go. See, you had relationships with people who talked to you about the fact that your sins could be forgiven and that you could be made right with God and you could know the creator of heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. You could know this Jesus Christ and have a personal relationship with him. That's the testimony of the church. The testimony of the church is not that we are sinless, but that he is perfect and that he rose from the dead to break the power of Satan, sin, and death. And that's our message. That's our testimony. That's why we're witnesses. When we go to work, when we are on our campus, when we talk to our parents, when we have friends, the singular thing that you ought to know is that we are witnesses of who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, if you came in here today and you thought, man, I picked a terrible Sunday to come to church because I don't understand anything this guy's been talking about in Revelation chapter 11 at all. Who's Zechariah and why who would name their kids Zerubbabel? Let me tell you that God, throughout the scriptures, has always left his people in every season of Israel's history to be witnesses of who he is and what he has done. That he has never left himself without witness. And just as people raised their hand, there was somebody who was a witness in their life who talked to them about Jesus Christ, who talked to them about forgiveness of sins and repentance and faith and trust and putting their whole hope in the work of what Jesus has done for them. And the challenge I would say to you is don't snuff out the witness. Because the horror of this passage is joy over the fact that they have snuffed out the very message of their salvation. This is why John's stomach turns. This is why the witnesses mourn because they know that their ministry is just for a season and they know that their time is coming to an end. And from this point forward, it's a horror movie. The bold judgments are so devastating and so destructive and consistently from this point on, there will be no repentance. So it is a sobering thing to be called a witness and to be a witness and it is a sober thing to snuff out the very thing that would give you life. Father in heaven, this is a sobering text but we look at it and we remember in our own lives that you sent witnesses to us. You loved us enough to put people in our lives who had the courage to talk to us about sin and the courage to talk to us about repentance and about faith in Jesus Christ. And you loved us enough to send your son to die on the cross and to die the death that we deserved. So Father, we look at this text and we're grieved and saddened at the rebellion and the anger and the hardness of heart. We are sobered by this season that you have called us in Charleston to be witnesses. 
Would you give us boldness and courage to be the kind of witnesses that you want us to be? Would we be a church that pleases you in our particular commitment to be witnesses of Jesus Christ and his resurrection? Father, may the gospel be rich in our own hearts. Would we give thanks for those in our lives who were witnesses to us? And would you give us uh, perseverance to continue as a church to be a pillar and a foundation of the truth of the gospel witness? Father, make that true of us, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.